0: Welcome to We Are Meaningful, a podcast where we transform the anonymous experiences of Black and brown talent into powerful audio narratives. Each month, we center the dialogue around a common theme, providing you, our listeners, with the tools and resources you need to help navigate, grow, and thrive in corporate spaces. Our stories, experiences, and our voices are meaningful. We. meaningful hi everyone this is crystal and this is Krista and today we're joined by Brittany J Harris Brittany is a self-described black woman mother to a wonderful black boy sister daughter advocate she's a speaker facilitator creative strategist consultant and a thought leader on a mission to change the world how she can, one person, one conversation, one mind shift, and one interaction at a time. By day, Brittany is the Vice President of Learning and Innovation with the Winters Group, Incorporated, a global diversity and inclusion consulting firm. In her role, she is responsible for facilitating and designing high impact learning experiences that shift perspectives, build capacity, and empower action in service of equity, justice, and inclusion. And Brittany also joined us at our very first Bring Your Own Snacks event centered around the burden of proof narrative. And she led a incredible Mm -hmm. exclusive space uh, for the Black women who joined our event. And although I wasn't able to join it, I heard it was amazing. So we're going to have to bring Uh you back again later. Hey, Brittany. Hey, hey, appreciate it. (laughs) So we're so excited to jump into this conversation with you about this month's narrative by association that really focuses on the dissonance between what organizations are telling us they're committed to when it comes to black and brown talent and what they're actually doing. So what's happening behind the curtain, what's happening behind those closed doors. So before we jump into that, we're just going to roll the narrative. So anyone who hasn't heard it yet can have the opportunity uh, to listen. So let's roll the narrative hi
1: so what ultimately led you to look for and accept employment elsewhere as you know over the last several months we've had a difference of opinion about the expected outcomes of my role i am a data-driven organizational architect who expertly leverages inclusive process design to create spaces where underrepresented talent can grow and thrive. Instead of leveraging my skills, you'd prefer that I plan heritage month celebrations for your social feeds. You want a performance and I can no longer oblige. Beyond that, the combination and culmination of microaggressions, gaslighting, false accusations, unspoken rules, exclusionary practices, and hypocritical behaviors. Gulp. But you said ultimately. Amy, last week you compared conferences for black tech professionals to neo-Nazism. Um, okay. So, this is all on the record, and I could get fired for something like this. I mean... Come on, my husband is black and I have black kids. I'm obviously not racist and I apologize for it and it really wasn't my intention to offend you. So I don't see why this has to be part of your exit interview. While you didn't intend to be racist, you were and are. I can't justify that comment, mindset or behavior especially when it isn't the first time. So ultimately, Amy, your racism is what brought us here today. Okay. Well, did you feel that you were equipped to do your job well at least? My work was always treated as priority number 5,788,332,120. I never had the power to make decisions, and there was never a desire to truly integrate inclusion into the DNA of our culture, practices, and decision making. Then, the work transformed into something for multiple roles, but the team didn't grow, just my workload. For a company so concerned with the bottom line, you run this team like a lemonade stand. It's unrealistic. Well then, any other comments, questions, concerns? Uh, Yeah, it's quite performative here. Always ready with a seemingly heartfelt soundbite, but never willing to actually act. What happened behind the curtain never truly changed, but we put on quite a show in front of it. Employee resource groups, progressive public statements, pics of our black employees on the cover page, You never intended to move the needle though. While I'm gracious for the opportunity I earned here, it's taught me many lessons. One of the most important, y'all ain't worth it. I am.
0: So now that we've had the opportunity to hear the narrative, Brittany, what are your initial thoughts and reactions uh, to it? Yeah, so, um, so yeah, that was heavy, right? And so as I <clears throat> was listening, um, a few words that came to mind for me, um, definitely real, right? Um, I would even go as far to say trauma. And so it narr- uh, the narrative itself really resonated with me on a personal level. Prior to being part of the external consulting world, I actually worked internal within corporate America in diversity. And as much as those were like cumulative, like growth experiences, it was also toxic. Um, a lot of those roles were like very undermining. And so as i listened i was kind of like damn like this is all the stuff i would have wanted to say uh then um particularly if i knew then what i knew about myself right now what i knew about this work what i knew about white people and white supremacy um and the ways that it shows up ever so subtly um in the very same work right diversity work that is seeking to dismantle it but is it subtle though Um, so, so I, so, so, so think about it this way. Right. And I, and I named it very specifically as, as white supremacy. And I say subtle because a lot of times folks, especially in corporate America. And so I would venture to say that's a that, that's a term that hasn't even really hit the c-suite right um because when we think about it or when we think about white supremacy uh, we think about sort of like very overt forms of racism right harm being done we think kkk being done mm-hmm. to, to black and brown bodies um and we do ourselves a disjustice, a, an injustice, when we when we think of it or have such a narrow view of it. Um, it gives corporate America a way out, right? And I've been thinking about this a lot because a lot of what we experience, um, and as much as we have like sugarcoated it as implicit bias, and as much as we have um, <clears throat> identified very palatable words to refer to, much of what was experienced, even like. In that narrative, um, at its core is white supremacy, right? And so, um, you know, and if you would ask that white the woman in that video, are you white supremacist or racist? You know what I mean? Like, no, absolutely not. And so I've been like thinking about that like entire dynamic um a lot lately, like, especially as a lot of organizations, and y'all know really begin to experience this like racial consciousness this awakening everybody and their mom and their dad and their and their all these leaders are committing recommitting what have you to racial justice and equity um there's this quote by uh james baldwin that's really been like resonating with me of late um and he says i can't believe what you say because i see what you do Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's spot on, and so yeah, companies and leaders, you can make commitments left and right to racial justice and affirm that black lives matter, and yet, when you look at your leadership team, it's like a totally different story. Um, you will even have leaders go as far to like distance themselves from like the Amy Coopers of the world, right um, you know you you got leaders joining the you know defund the police movement when there are literally Amy Cooper's running rampant in their HR and diversity departments. There are actual policies, practices, and behaviors that continue to cause harm, right, to black and brown bodies within their companies every day, within the, you know, walls of their institutions. And so, um, yeah, it's like, it's it's, it's like, To to black and brown folks, maybe not so subtle, but these are, um, the the impact, how about the impact is very real, but these Mm -hmm. are much broader ways in which, um, we see, you know, white supremacy show up at an interpersonal level. Right. And it um it does. It does the work harm. Right. It does the work harm. Um, one thing I haven't done and I probably should like define white supremacy beyond how we know it. Right. And so at its core, it's the ideology. Right. The ideology that <clears throat> suggests that white in and of itself is inherently good or purer, or better than, right? Or the standard by which every other body or, like, culture should aspire to. And so when you hear, like, even in that narrative, that this, that, that statement, um, oh, I can't be, you know, I, I can't be racist, you know, because I have a friend, or, like, I'm married to someone who's Black. I that, can't be racist. I'm yeah, white. I'm, I'm, yeah, right? Like, <laughs> that is essentially, that's, like, peak <laughs> white supremacy. <laughs> like, I'm gonna do all that I can to preserve the goodness of right who I am um and it's problematic right um it's problematic and it plays out every day it plays out in conversations moreover it plays out you know systematically because them folks ain't doing the work they saying they're doing the work but they're not doing the work which is um in this moment in time like we can't hold space for right we, we gotta we gotta do better yeah, a hundred percent. And when we say they're not doing the work previously, what was happening is that organizations would be like, oh, we're going to plan this heritage month and we're going to have a potluck and Taco Tuesday. And it's like, wait a minute, that is not the real work. Because we need to look at this leadership team, who's being promoted, uh-huh. who's leaving, who's coming through the door and leaving through the window. Uh-huh. Like we need to be learning all of these things and addressing those things. Uh-huh. Not trying to figure out like how do we become more aware and have this kumbaya moment with all the people that are diverse uh-huh. in our company. Uh-huh. So, um, so it's funny you. It's funny you mention that. So. I've been thinking about just like the evolution of this work because a lot of things that you mentioned and how the work is perceived are very programmatic, right? Mm -hmm. And so I've just been thinking about how like diversity at its core, when you think about it, um, evolved from like the work of, you know, I think civil rights, right? Black and brown folks, you know, centering humanity, calling for justice, demanded their rights. We talking like, you know, collective, like movement building, disrupting systems. That's how this work came about, right? And it's interesting because, um, you know, it has since evolved into this work that is, sure, I just mentioned and the things you mentioned are, you know, programmatic, but also, um, you know, tied to things like business case right tied to things that like oh well you know what do the numbers say you know what are what are the metrics tied to things like innovation very capitalistic in the sense that we've now prioritized um, those things, innovation, business case, money, how does it hit the bottom line over like lived experience, right? Mm-hmm. Like what actual black and brown folks and other marginalized communities are actually saying they need. And that is not by happenstance. And so I want to call that because er- I want to call it out because early I talked about like how subtle white supremacy is white supremacy, essentially in corporate America, because that's like a vehicle by which it continues to thrive um, pretty much like took diversity of, you know, civil rights work, justice work, and, evolved it took it you know and and turned it into what it is like that we're experiencing like now like present day um and that is not by happenstance and so i've been doing you know research around just like understanding and this research predates us y'all and so i just want to honor like you know our ancestors elders folks who have been doing this work like before it was even you know trendy right um but anyway like a lot of research out there around like just like specific characteristics associated with white supremacy culture and one of them is quantity over quality this notion that only things that i can point to as being measurable have value right it is not by happenstance that this work has now like um evolved into something where you know bottom line means more than black voices right like or um awards and uh then that gets back to that performative stuff means more than like what folks are experiencing like legit trauma exclusion like over and over again every day as they come into work like it's not by happenstance like that's how this system works and um nothing is safe like not even the work that's seeking to like disrupt it and dismantling mm-hmm. it and it's so important for, like, practitioners, right? Practitioners got to know that, you know, got to be able to name this stuff, understand this stuff. Um, yeah. And it's so that's why I mean by, I take you back to, I, I even go back to that question around subtle. That's how subtle it is. Folks really out here thinking that we doing, you know, I guess this work, how it should be, because we've normalized, mm-hmm. right? We've kind of just, uh, it's, we've normalized um, how it has been, how it has has, has, has uh, been done um, and lost sight of like the roots, right? The root and, and yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's, I think that's just important to know and name. Yes, call the thing a thing right thing, yeah, like that's a, a, that was actually a New York, uh, uh, one of the outlets posted an article um, entitled that, I think Charles Blow um, this week, said the same thing, y'all, it's, it's about time we started calling, you know, things, things, especially in conversation, um, you know, we, you know, with our peers, with white folks, right, and, and um, in this work, right, in this work.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think a lot of the things you touched on, right, kind of get back to this idea of distancing yourself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So what are these kind of like distancing statements and and what role do they play in the bigger issue of systemic racism?
0: Yeah. And so um, one thing I want to mention, just like as we think about like racism and how it exists, is that it's like there's there's levels to it. Right. And so there's like that interpersonal, certainly, or I'm sorry, intrapersonal, the stuff that we internalize that say there's like the interpersonal, like the things that happen Um, in relationship with others. There's obviously like the, um, you know, organizational, institutional, that structural stuff. And so we talk about distancing statements, we're talking at like the interpersonal um, level of racism with very or much broader like systemic implications. And so by definition, uh, distancing statement or behavior, those are those like statements used by white folks, especially in conversations around race whether they realize it or not, um, that undermine the impact of racism that more often than not undermine the lived experiences of black and brown folks and ultimately like absolve them from the responsibility of acknowledging their role and moreover, like their complicity and racism. And if that if they absolve themselves from that, they subsequently subsequently absolve themselves from actually doing the work to dismantle it. And so that very practically sounds like referring to a black friend, it might sound like suggesting that, like, you know, well, we've come a long way since civil rights. It's, you know, it's not really that bad. Um, Mm. It might sound like, you know oversimplifying solutions to racism well this wouldn't exist if they would just right um it might even sound like that very progressive like woke liberal liberal white person distancing themselves from other white people who aren't as woke like i'm not like them over there i'm like the okay like the woke person the woke white person in the group i get it and um it may seem innocent and small, but really what it does is, you know, it kind of like perpetuates this false good, bad white person dichotomy um, that, again, takes them out of like, <clears throat> you know, not wanting to feel guilty um, you know it distracts them from the truth that they all play like a role in racism, whether it's by benefiting it, benefiting from it, upholding it, failing to challenge it in all like the ways um available and so I offer even when I'm doing sessions right to you know for white folks to just really sit with when you have the urge to respond, just sit with why right and even if you have the urge to like um I know when a lot of companies uh uh, release statements, you know, many of them, and many of them were signed by, you know, their white-led institutions, so let's just say, you know, white men, many, many were signed, these letters are, you know, being signed by white men, reference the racism as if it was over there. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like, as if they, there, there's no real, I, I, I don't recall a letter, especially from the very um, first few that dropped that acknowledge complicity. Yes, George Floyd just happened, but I, as a white man in this organi- in this organizational system, as a leader, have been complicit. That's, a, that's like a big first part of the work, right? Um, I think that, and so in as much as that's like work that you know white people need to be doing, I also think that it is so important, just as like black and brown folks, to be able to just like realize and name that you know name these dynamics i have found that it can be so easy y'all to at least in my experience to like internalize some of the problematic stuff we encounter in white spaces like as inherent to ourselves and so that plays out like um you know stuff like imposter syndrome right or that plays out in like burnout because now we think that we literally have to change the heart and mind of every white person we meet or we start thinking that maybe because we haven't been able to, we're not like effective or doing enough or adding value, and none of that is true. Like I refuse. I <laughs> refuse, especially in this work. Um, I've actually gotten the habit of like affirming, like, you know what, that over there, that's not my work. What they got, um, you know, Karen, Jake, Skip, like that is not my work. <laughs> and um, like the like the moment I started like to understand, like, whiteness, white people, white supremacy, it was it was legit, like major key alert, like major key alert because it ain't me. You know what I mean? It is not me. Now I exist in this system and I need to be accountable to the ways in which like I internalize some of this stuff um, or have been injected with some of this stuff, so much so that I gotta actively reject it at all costs. Um, but it, it, it's not me. Um, it's um, It's not me and so I think that's a huge competency. Uh, that's a huge competency for practitioners. But I think when we start to change the conversation from surviving to like thriving in some of these spaces, it's really, really doing the work to like evolve our own, you know, critical consciousness, right? And like disrupting, um, disrupting like white supremacy at all costs. I ask myself sometimes, y'all, like, all right, Britt, are you like colluding right now? Are you disrupting? Are you colluding right now? Like, or are you disrupting? Like, even down to like narratives I have, or like we've heard related to like blackness, right? Like, um, one narrative that I will shut down immediately. Like, my black my black fingers are strong on social media, and this is the name of self care, um, because I will no longer like even put myself in spaces that perpetuate narratives that are not true to my what I who I believe I am and and what I believe like the broader collective is and so like that whole like crabs in a barrel trope like oh black folk can't get along no that's not real we're not like inherently out here just trying to like put each other down collectivism and like the value of collectivism is actually inherent to the black diaspora like we learned and we're like legitimately injected with individualism which is like another whole function of of white supremacy and we can reject that um we can reject that we can reject a lot of these narratives that we've been exposed to socialized to believe injected with um and when we know better right and that's part of the work like that's a that's a that's a big part of the like self-work that i'm on these days and uh i think is necessary just for like my own self-care as a practitioner right so I feel like I just said a lot. I went from like distance statements to like, you know, (laughs) like, you know, our work. So, so, so yeah, but that's, that's the vibe. That's the vibe I'm on right now. Like, um, doing the work and doing my work, you know what I mean? Like my work is also part of the work, right? And all that is wrapped up in that. Yeah. And you definitely said a lot and... All of it was valid. I was taking it all in. And in my mind, I was like, so, Brittany, can we be friends, like, off of Instagram, off of LinkedIn? Like, there's so many things that I can learn from you. I legit, like, look, I... Like, um, I actually be feeling like I'm friends with like the folks I'm connected with, like y'all included. <laughs> so you don't even know, but like, we are already friends. Like it's already like after it, it we was friends after actually well before, um, um, Britain of proof and you didn't even know. So <laughs> yeah, I love this. I love this. So, yes, definitely appreciate everything um, that you had to say. And we talked about, you talked a lot about what's going on in corporate spaces in this work. Um, And as you mentioned earlier in the conversation, there's sometimes some fragility that's happening on these diversity, equity, and inclusion teams, some white fragility. How do you feel like this fragility is affecting the greater mission that we have, uh, on these teams and in yeah. this world. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to be absolutely, so I'm going to be honest with you. Um, so, so, so yes, fragility absolutely can be a detriment to the work. Absolutely. And, I I actually struggle with the the term white fragility, y'all. I absolutely struggle with the term. I actually wrote about it when it first hit the when it first hit the DNI scene. I'm like, wait a minute, there's something about this term. And this is no shade to Robin DiAngelo. I actually recognize and understand the value of her work, and I struggle with the term. Um, I interpret it as like another term, yet another term that. Has become like very palatable and like less threatening for white folks to describe their beh- behavior right? Um, kind of like how implicit bias was, right? Y'all work, in, y'all work in this space, like how implicit bias hit the scene and it was kind of, it's like normalized. Girl, if um, I hear about implicit bias you know, What? Time. I'm just like, no, and I feel like white fragility is on its way. <laughs> it, is, it is on its way, and so um, I just find it fascinating, and this is another like subtle thing about white supremacy. I find it fascinating that even a term so white fragility is meant to be critical to some extent, um, but even the term white fragility elicits like a certain degree of like empathy and understanding and maybe even pity because the word fragility, like the root, the root word being fragile is like associated with stuff like being careful, you know, or being gentle with something, uh, you know, it suggests a certain degree of like delicacy thereby like requiring more effort in handling like whatever, whomever it is. And so when something is fragile, like you're actually expected to do a little more work to make sure the object is safe. These are not conditions that black people and people of color are afforded, like when sharing their truths and experiences around race, particularly when like, they're engaging with white folks. And so I don't like, I, I struggle with that term, like white fragility, like nah, call it what it is. White fragility is white supremacy at work. White people don't like being called white supremacists, but that's okay. Like, you know, that goes back to that naming a thing, you know, and so no, maybe it's not white fragility, it's white supremacy. It's it's defensiveness. It's entitlement to comfort. It's that whole good, bad binary we talked about earlier. And those are actually characteristics of, you know, white supremacy. I think when we start to call things a thing, right, that's part of the accountability work. Like, I, um, you know people have stigmatized like call out calling out like nah we can absolutely call out because to some extent like you know calling out and accountability from my perspective and in this work be- is, is is a form of love like at its core justice is like a very practical manifestation of love because whether you are a uh, a black person person of color a white person um experienced in a society like racism white supremacy robs us all like robs us all from our full humanity and like you know it deprives us of being able to live fully to connect with others to actually like be compassionate and so in as much as um guilt shame and those feelings are part of like the transformation work that's not like it that's just something you gotta go through to get through, right? And so, um, you know, we gotta name things as they are. We have to like destigmatize, calling out. I feel like we gotta understand accountability as love. You know, this work at its core is um about reimagining something different. And we can't do that like without going through the messiness of it. Y'all, like, um, Two weeks ago, I just started working out again with my trainer because, you know, quarantine 15 or whatever you call it, that's like real life. And that first week, my body was done. I could barely, like, um, walk up the stairs. If I just stop, like, just because I'm in pain or because I'm, like, you know, hurting or I'm, shit, you know, feeling how I feel, like, I'm not going to get to where I need to be. And such is the case with this work. Like, we actually have to go through some, you know, and this is a call out to uh, white folks more specifically doing their work to understand themselves to dismantle, and then like black folks, brown folks like the unlearning right that relearning that healing work you know that's that is um you know that's that's some tough stuff too. I offer that uh because one thing I want to be clear about is um especially as companies start to like <laughs> you know, develop trainings and embed, you know, anti-racism, racial justice to their portfolios that we need to be very mindful that Black folks, people of color, Our role in dismantling this system looks different from white folks, just like we experience the the system differently, right? And so, yeah, we all got our our healing work to do, but our our work looks very different. We need our own containers to do that work, demystifying internalized oppression, like understanding and reimagining like Black-centered and African-centered like uh, approaches to our work building our like collective power and like what it means to organize within organizational systems that's very different than like allyship the 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 allyship you know the, the stuff that white folks need to be going through um i really hope organizations even think critically about that as they begin to like do this work um you know you can't approach it the way that it has already been oh you know has always been done quite frankly if we do that you know we end up getting the same output um output and i'm just hopeful that this moment in time like and as much as i'm skeptical sometimes and cynical i'm also hopeful y'all i do hope that uh many organizations people folks like use this moment as a way to just really evolve and reimagine something new um that's the that's that's my hope, right? And it, it's gonna take some work to get there. Yes, call Brittany, y'all. Call the way. <laughs> yeah. How, call how can we,
1: Brittany? How can we get in touch with you, please? Because I know uh, everybody's gonna follow all of this with where's Brittany? Where can we find <laughs> Brittany? So where can they find you?
0: So so I'm out. You know, I'm out in these virtual streets. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so on Twitter, I'm kind of active on Twitter. Um, I'm Brittany Janae on everything. So Twitter handle Brittany Janae on IG, Brittany Janae underscore. And so B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y Janae, J-A-N-A-Y underscore. And on LinkedIn, I am Brittany J. Harris. Um, There are a bunch of Brittany J. Harris's. uh, If you find me on LinkedIn, I think on this profile picture, I have a headscarf. And so um, I'm out here feel free to visit or check us out on the Winters Group website as well, um, wintersgroup.com. Also a Black woman-owned global consulting firm, right? And so, you know, for the organizations that's really about that life, certainly hope you out here, um, you know, uh, partner with organizations that are owned by and led by the folks who are experiencing racism. Black and brown consultants. So, yes, that reach out that. to Brittany. Reach out to the winners group, and then you can sit with us. But you also got to pay us. Okay. Oh, that's a whole nother episode. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole another episode. That's a whole Love nother it. episode. What? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the We Are Meaningful podcast. Follow us on Instagram at wearemeaningful.co and visit our website to learn more about our community and how you can get involved. We're excited to hear your thoughts on today's episode. Talk to you next week.